Get your gear ready. This is a Sherpa's Guide to Innovation. That's right. It's a Sherpa's Guide to Innovation, a podcast dedicated to guiding you along your innovation expedition. This is your humble servant and host, Benjamin Tingey. I'm here with David Phillips and Elizabeth Watson, two expert design thinkers and teachers. Every tree begins as a seed, and this is the episode from which we'll sprout many more episodes related to human-centered design, and we have to start somewhere. And so, David and Elizabeth, thanks so much for being here to kick us off. Awesome. Thank you, Ben. Happy to be here. A message to our listeners. Please subscribe, share, rate, and review. I like that. Subscribe, share, rate, and review. Subscribe, share, rate, and review. E-Dub, drop a beat for me. Subscribe, share, rate, and review. Subscribe. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're your own one-man band over there. <laughs> I don't think my hand gestures work on a podcast, but I'm, <laughs> right. I'm breaking it down over here. Awesome. Well, let's start with our key takeaways related to human-centered design. Elizabeth, what would be one thing that you would like our listeners to take away from this opening episode on human-centered design or design thinking? Start with empathy and always keep going back to empathy. I think there are lots of methods and tools you can use, but if you stay really focused on people, then you'll do a good job. Stay rooted to empathy. Excellent. David? It actually ties in well with that uh, around empathy. It's this principle of design with, not for. Because by designing with, you're actually, it's another way of bringing in other perspectives and another way to ensure you've got empathy throughout the process, not just at some discovery phase or some some part you put in the box. Hey, we did the empathy. Now we're done with it. It doesn't work that way. Excellent takeaway. So before we get started, I wanted to ask you, David, to share with us the story about the Faster Glass name of your consulting practice. And so David is the founder and innovation provocateur, in, in, as your title says, of the Faster Glass Consulting Group. And so Faster Glass, you've told me that story before. It's a great story. So uh, tell us. Sure. I'll give you the short version. Okay. It actually comes from the world of photography. So about 10 months before I started the consulting practice, I had gotten into photography, had bought a really expensive camera only to realize I had no idea how to use it. I was just taking really expensive bad pictures. So I'm diving in, I'm reading books, and I'm learning, and I come across this term, fast glass, that uh, professional photographers call their high-end lenses fast glass. The quality of the glass affects the resulting image. Fast forward 10 months, I'm starting a consulting firm, trying to figure out what to call it, and thinking through, it's almost like a branding exercise. What do we do? Well, one of the things, one of the ways I describe what we do is we help people see different. We help them frame their challenges and opportunities differently. And I was thinking that, you know how directors make that little frame with their thumb and their finger, their forefinger? Uh, so I did that and realized, yeah, we help people see different, like a director or like like a photographer. And that term just sort of had been stuck in my mental socks came back and went, oh, so we'll be like like a photographer, like fast glass. And then it was also a nod to – it was a running set of commercials in the 80s about Avis and Hertz, and I forget which one was which. But one was – their tagline was, we're number two, but we try harder. So I thought, we'll be – we're not the fastest glass, but we'll be faster glass. And so I said, we'll use that name until we come up with a better one. So that was seven years ago, so apparently it's stuck. Well, I think it's a pretty great name. And so your firm emphasizes – 
using design thinking uh, in your consulting work. Absolutely. Yeah, we really help people solve complex problems, disrupt the status quo, uh, and intentionally design experiences. But all of that is using the principles and practices of design thinking and human-centered design. Excellent. And Elizabeth, you are one of the co-leads, I guess, but uh, of the Catalyst program at Atrium Health, where you are teaching human-centered design to, to teammates there. So tell us a little more about what you do there. So the Catalyst program was started about three years ago. We spent a lot of time planning because there were already some groups like Kaiser Permanente um, who were doing this really well. And then there are some outside consulting groups where some of our teammates had gone, like the D-School. I guess it's not a consulting group, but there were outside groups that are very well known for for teaching design thinking and human-centered design. And we wanted to figure out, first of all, what could we bring to the table that would be different than one of those um, groups? And also, how could we make it our own? Kaiser, I think, has done a really good job of making their Catalyst program really unique to the work that they're doing. And so we spent some time looking at sort of the core fundamentals of design thinking. And then also we look to our daily work in the innovation engine to say, what do people at Atrium Health need to actually bring innovation to life? And so we created a curriculum. We say we're always prototyping. So it started with um, six months and then it went to four months and now we're back to six months. In the Catalyst program, we have teams who apply. We kind of follow the the standard of these types of programs and say we don't want just loan catalyst because it's really hard to get work done if you're the only person on your team who's excited about it. Um, and so we have teams apply and they we help them pick a project that would be suitable for human-centered design. And then they they use that project throughout the course to apply the principles and the tools that, that we're teaching. And so at the end, they do a report out or a pitch and our, our goal is that some good projects will come out of it, but also that people will feel more confident using these tools. It's hard in a system like ours to train everyone, but we thought if we started with the people who were already energized, then we could start making some progress. So it's been, it's been really fun teaching. It's one of my favorite, favorite things to do. Yeah. And I am a, Cat grad. Yeah. I graduated from the from the Catalyst program and thought it was supremely well done. Well, there may be some listeners who are unfamiliar with the methodology, and so let's have each of you take 60 seconds. I won't time you, but a brief <laughs> a brief amount of time to explain the steps in the human centered design process. So maybe Dave, I'll start with you and then Elizabeth, you can add and expound. Okay. So how we define it, how we talk about it is uh, that design thinking is both the mindset and the tools. It's a way of thinking and it's a way of working that leverages the principles and practices that designers have been taught and have used for decades. And we help people use those tools and techniques and principles and practices to solve big problems. It's a problem-solving methodology. Uh, But it embraces uh, discovery and empathy and iteration and rapid prototyping and and embracing failure of learning what doesn't work as quickly as we possibly can. And then throwing that all in the mix, saying we can use these in a way to accomplish really big goals. Great brief summary. Terrific. Elizabeth, what would you add? Typically, I am explaining what design thinking is to a group of healthcare professionals who have lots of other like quality improvement 
methods that they use. Um, there are a lot of folks who are trained in lean thinking, mm-hmm. lean Six Sigma here at Atrium. And so the way that I usually describe it is think of design thinking as a framework, just like lean is. Um, and some of the tools do overlap, but it's a framework that instead of focusing on taking out waste, which is what lean does, it's really a tool for um, understanding your user. And it's it helps you be more creative. It helps you make improvements and it can help you create something that's totally new. And so there are different tools for different things you're trying to accomplish. Design thinking isn't for everything that you're trying to do, but if you're trying to do something that's never been done before, let's start here and see if this is the right tool for you. Awesome. Great summaries. Do you remember when or where you were when you first learned about human-centered design and and what drew you to it? So remember Elizabeth? Um yes, because I'm sort of embarrassed by when I learned about human-centered design. I was actually in my job interview when I started with the innovation engine. I think they brought me in because I had done some graphic design in the past. And so I remember when they were asking me questions about design, I was like, oh, yeah, I've done that. Mm -hmm." And they're like, so what kind of design? And I just I don't even know what I said. Luckily, they were just desperate, I guess, to hire someone. (laughs) Um, But my background is in public health. And so that empathy thing and the research part and trying new things, I think that appealed to um the folks who are interviewing me. But so it wasn't actually until I started working with the innovation engine that I got really like a crash course in design thinking. And I was like, Oh, that's not what you were asking me. (laughs) Um, But it's, it's something that once you see it, you can't unsee it. Um, And so I've, I've told people before, I don't know, even if I go to work in some other industry or in some other role, I think I will always be a design thinker now. Absolutely. That's a great story. It is. It really is. So for me, when, you know, where was I? When did I first uh, come across design thinking? Well, it was a Tuesday morning. It was, it was raining uh, a little after 10. (laughs) No, uh, it was, it was a happy accident for me. So I was working at Bank of America at the time as a learning manager. So that role basically was, and for some of our technology groups, it's understanding what does the business need to do, what does our what do our technology folks need to do to support the business goals. What so my job was to identify what are the learning needs, what are the learning gaps, and then how do we fill those gaps. And I simply had a project land on my desk, like many other projects. And it was one of our technology executives had gone to a conference. They had heard a couple of the speakers talk about design thinking. And at the time, so this was two thousand late two thousand five, early two thousand six. And Bank of America at the time was uh, deeply, deeply enthralled with Six Sigma. It had been rolled out, I think, maybe it was about four years into it. And we, it become this is the way we do things. This is the way we solve problems. And like any other problem-solving tool, great tool when properly applied. When it's the only tool you have, you know, be careful. So this project lands on my desk that one of our technology executives had heard about this design thinking stuff. And, and she said, somebody ought to go check this out and see if this is something we should do. Somehow it wound its way through the department and lands on my desk. Like, hey, you and you and you, you guys go to Boston, talk to these guys about this stuff. See if it's something we ought to do. And so we fly to Boston. And again, it's, at the time, it's just another project. I have no idea this is about to literally change my life. 
And we go, we talk to these guys. They had been both management consultants and one guy had recently taken over as the dean of the business school of, of uh, dean of the graduate school of business at Boston College, a guy named Andy Boynton. And as he's describing what design thinking is that they had learned from the folks at IDEO, right, all roads lead back to Stanford and IDEO. For me, it was like angel singing. Ah, that wait, this is a thing. This is there is a discipline. There is a structure to this because this is how my brain has always worked, and had kind of been told, you know, can you just do what you're supposed to do? And I'm thinking, but why? But why? Why do we do that? Why not this other thing? What else could we be doing? So learning that there was tools and structure and a way to do this was music to my ears. So I come back with my colleagues. We went on the trip and said, "Hey, I think we ought to do this." We we did a test. We did a pilot. We brought Andy and uh, we brought Andy down to run a session for us. And for me, it was yeah. We, not only is this something we ought to consider, we should absolutely do this. And then I went to my boss and said, "If we're serious about this, this this can't be a project. This is going to be somebody's job, full time job, and I'll be happy to do it." And so I kind of got the opportunity. And said, "Well, we'll fund it for the rest of the year, but if it doesn't work, you're out." I'm thinking, fine, you know, this is worth giving it a shot. And so it it worked well enough. So my job was kind of helping people uh, throughout the bank understand there's an, here's another problem-solving methodology that's complementary to Six Sigma. And so that became my job for the next four and a half years at, at B of A. Wow. Great stories. Do you have a favorite step in the design thinking process? So which Which is it? When I'm teaching, I see that everyone wants to jump to ideation. Everybody wants to brainstorm. They come in with ideas. That would be the natural choice. However, I love the empathy building phase. I feel like I could talk to people and observe people and pull out insights from those observations. Like I just love that phase. There's definitely been times where we had to say, okay, we cannot keep doing this discovery work. Like we have to, <laughs> we have to keep moving on right now. But yeah, that's my favorite. It's so fun. Um, understanding people more deeply. Yeah. David. So I love the empathy piece as well. Uh, sometimes I describe when we're talking about when we're teaching or either doing or teaching people how to conduct ethnographic research is that it's people watching on purpose. So if you enjoy both really deeply understanding what's going on and why people are doing a certain thing or not doing a certain thing, then that's that's the space. In fact, just this morning, teaching a class about designing experiences, we showed the commercial that uh, the Cleveland Clinic had done several oh, years yeah. ago about mm-hmm. empathy, and it's. I mean, it's powerful. Really it's, powerful. you know, yeah. you know, allergies start acting up watching this <laughs> thing. It's so good. Uh, but for me, the, the phase that I really enjoyed the most is the prototyping. This idea, we define it really broadly as make any visual or tangible representation of an idea so that others can understand it and react to it. And the reason I really like that step so much is and I tell folks if there's any magic in the design thinking process, it's there. And it's not because prototyping in itself is magical. It's because it contrasts with what we typically do, which is over-rely on words, and then we think we're in agreement, and then later we realize we're not in agreement, and then we're wondering, what are those other idiots doing? So mm-hmm. prototyping helps us. It doesn't completely eliminate that, but it it does. That you know that visual representation leads to clarity. Clarity leads to shared understanding. Once we have a shared understanding, you know now we have a much greater chance of making progress. Without that, it's good luck. Yeah. Any parts of the process that you don't like as much, Elizabeth? You're smiling. Yes. So I don't know that I don't 
that this is something that I don't like. And I don't know that this necessarily has to be part of every process, but I think that I am less of a fan of some of the, what I've seen called democratization of design, only because I think sometimes, especially in a large organization, there's a lot of the work that's actually more about stakeholder management than it is about design. And I think sometimes those things get blended together in a way that you're sort of designing for here's what 50 people who just learned about a problem think. I was trying to imagine like, what do I think IDEO does about this? And I, I have a feeling like they've found ways around this. And I think as a as an innovation engine, we've also kind of learned like what types of sessions are good for X, Y, Z. But I think that's definitely a little frustrating. Um, not that I am the, the expert in all things, because I'm definitely not. But just sometimes I can see a room full of people, even when given the opportunity, they sort of come back to the average when I really want to push them beyond that. Mm-hmm. And I think that just it takes time to be comfortable being pushed. And so I think it's hard to do that when it's a one off type of session. So I would answer that question. Uh, so not necessarily a particular aspect of the process, but I think uh, kind of to what Elizabeth was saying, different types of engagements where it, you know, we're just feels like we're running in mud. And for me, the, the sort of more specific scenario is when I, when I have a client or members of a client team, especially if it's a team, some core committee or what have you, and they just seem so married to a particular idea. And, and I just keep, I keep asking myself, what am I doing or not doing? How, you know, how can I influence them to move beyond that idea and, and, you know, at least be willing to explore others? Uh, And when I'm unable to do that, I just, I feel like this, you know, I've missed something. There's, uh, there's, I I wish there were some other tool or some other technique I could, I could call upon to help them move beyond this. Uh, And so when, when that happens, I feel like they're stuck in, I think I've heard you guys talk about something maybe that that Gene Wright has said, the difference between a rut and a grave dimensions is that or did I just make that up as well? I think I've heard Will say that. He said okay. it on one of the podcasts. I've heard somebody say that yeah. on your team. Sounds good. And I feel like they've just they've they've they're in this rut and they've now dug this grave and by God, they're willing to die in this grave with this idea. I'm like, you've hired me to help you and I'm not helping you. Mm-hmm. That that's frustrating. Yeah, I like that. Well, Elizabeth is a great storyteller. And I know that, David, I bet you have a treasure trove of, of good stories. Can you share a, a couple of stories about successful or unsuccessful projects and any key insights that came out of those? Do you have one in mind, Elizabeth? So a recent project has been around improving the dementia care experience. And we initially started out with a, I mean, we've done quite a bit of discovery work and ethnographic research, um, looking at, you know, best practices around the world. And we brought people together for a design session and the groups all came up with some ideas around like a web portal. So we spent some time developing some prototypes and then we went back to patients and family members and they're like, yeah, this is great. But if my doctor gave me this right after I was diagnosed or right after a family member was diagnosed, I wouldn't feel great about that. What I really want is something that I can leave the office with in my hands. And so we sort of went back to the drawing board and then we did, we made like a book and a website. And again, we went back and we were talking to groups and they're like, yeah, this website's great, but we love this book. We love this 
teal bag that you put it in. This makes me feel special to have this. And so we ended up scrapping the website, which I think is smart because there are lots of really great websites out there already for people who are um, diagnosed or caring for someone with dementia. And we really focused on how do we connect, how do we use a a booklet, which doesn't sound that innovative, but how do we put the information that people really need to connect with the resources locally? So the thing that's hard for people to get from a diagnosis to when we were talking to people, it can take years to really get connected with those resources. How can we put that all in something that's easy to consume, that's not scary, because that was some of the feedback we got that a lot of the material was scary, and that could speak to both the family member and the person who was diagnosed. And so we came up with this booklet, and it's I, I'm sort of ashamed because I think people hear innovation and they think we're like doing everything with like um, bots and blockchain drones, and blockchain. Yeah, right. But it was really a booklet and a bag that that people and physicians and patients and family members have really connected with. And it's it's not the bag. It's the the information and the resources and putting them in contact. But I think that sort of goes back to what you're saying, David, like you have to be able to let go of what you think it is you want and really get to the core of the thing that you're trying to design. And the thing was the connection. It wasn't the website or the book or a text message or anything. It was how do we provide the connection in the way that people actually want to have it? Yeah. Fall in love with the problem, not the solution. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Ten points. David, stories. Hit me. One that comes to mind from a recent engagement, it was with a nonprofit bilingual preschool, Charlotte Bilingual Preschool. And it kind of goes to what you're saying is that this pro using this process, using these tools, the output itself may not be something, quote, innovative. But if the process allows you and enables you and equips you to think differently about the, the work itself and the process, it may allow you to get to a better decision, regardless of that output or that decision is innovative or not. So this particular engagement, Charlotte Bilingual Preschool, I think they've been around 30 years, 20 or 30 years. I forget the exact history. They serve a very specific population. And they decided they wanted to expand that population. They wanted to open up. They, they're in their head in this direction. They want to open up another classroom that will be a mix of kids from Spanish-speaking households and kids from English-speaking households and also a broader range of socioeconomic uh, status, household income. So they engaged us to help us help them think through what that might look like. And so we did a two-day design sprint. But as part of that, going back to design with, not for, we included a number of parents because their existing audience, again, what they've been serving for 20 or 30 years is specifically uh, parents from lower-income households, Spanish-speaking households. And what we learned is that as we're going through, hey, here's an idea, we could do this, here's something else we could do, is that some of the parents were getting really uncomfortable with where this might go, you know, what this new version of their school might look like. And so at the end of day two, and we're doing the show and tell, you know, presentations with some other stakeholders, uh, one of the parents gave a really heartfelt comment to say, you know what, this we're really worried about, you know, that this is going to change, that we have this this home, this safe place for us, right? We we can speak our language here. This is, you know, this is a great place for us, and we're afraid it's going to go away. And one of the other parents said, I know you guys are going to make your decision anyway, but, you know, this makes me sad. And, you know, she had a quiver in her voice. You could tell there was some real feeling behind this. And for me, being an outsider, it was just, it was really impactful to know, like, wow, 
be careful what you might be giving up as you move toward the new shiny thing. And it also was impactful for the board and the executive director. So something, there was an immediate change to the rest of the work plan, and it was we will have parents involved in every meeting and in every stage of this work going forward, not just here at the beginning, you know, because it wasn't about, it never was about, let's just check the box and involve parents. But hearing that, the executive director said, you know what, we need to make sure those voices are in every single meeting, not someone said, it's first person. And and that really informed where that project went. And so they ended up with a solution that was much, much stronger and better for all of the constituents than maybe would have done if they hadn't designed with and instead just designed for. Uh, so that was power for me to, for me to see this is what you can get. And uh, I shudder to think what we would have missed had we not had parents actively wow. involved. That's an incredible story. Any others that you'd like to share? I'll open it up to both of you. I can tell you a quick – I don't know if it's – I'll call it a failure story. Back when I was doing this internally at Bank of America, we had somebody from one of the internal departments say, hey, you guys, your innovation lab, your innovation team, you've got some principles that – I'm assuming you guys have some principles that you really adhere to to help drive your work. Well, yes. Would you mind doing a workshop and teaching them to my team? I need my team to become more innovative. And the, the leader of this team was a very, I mean, extreme type A person, You know, very achievement-oriented, driven – uh, had risen very rapidly in the organization. Uh, anyway, we said, yeah, so here are some principles. Number one, fail early and often. And she literally takes a pen. So I had, you know, I had this on a printout. She literally takes her pen and just scratches through that. Yeah, we're not going to talk about failure. That's not something we do here. I remember thinking, well, then we should just stop now. You know, if you if you can't tolerate that, if you can't embrace the notion of learning what doesn't work, I'm not sure how we're going to make your team more innovative. But she's like, no, let's go. Let's do this. I, lo- I love two through seven. Let's do those. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, it's your money. It's your time. That's what you want to do. And so we did it. And she was like, here's what we're going to do. And bah. And I sincerely doubt that team became more innovative. Hmm. And that's – I've been thinking about this lately. And so pardon uh, the stream of consciousness here. But it, it's paradoxical a little bit that we – we think that innovation uh, is this way to come up with these amazing, incredible ideas and that sometimes it comes uh, at, at a high cost. But what innovation in a lot of ways really is, is risk mitigation. Because what you do is you're saving the company from yeah, – because you're, you're failing small and fast and you're saving the company from losing a whole lot of money or learning something way too late. Uh, because they've spent a whole bunch of money. They never talked to people first. They've never tested it. They've never piloted it. So I think that's one thing about design thinking as a risk mitigation strategy to all new ventures, any new ideas and projects. I think that's a value that is not talked about enough about uh, uh, human-centered design. I totally agree. In fact, we've started to adjust some of our language when we're talking to people about what this is and how you could benefit from it, is that it helps leaders make more informed decisions about those sorts of bets. Yeah. You know, where do we want to play? How are we going to play? How are we going to win there? What, you know, if we're trying to solve for X and it's really complicated or maybe it's not that complicated, but there are 37 different paths we could go down. How do we know which doors to open and which ones to not? It is that we'll through these tools, through these principles and practices, you can learn what doesn't work and do it quickly and cheaply so you can make more informed decisions. Maybe you're not going to 
get it 100% right, but you can get closer to having a more confident decision. Yeah. One of the fails, this one was a pretty, I won't say high profile, because we don't have a lot of high profile fails. We tend to fly under the radar until we feel pretty good about things. But there was a project where we were tasked tasked with making people healthier at home. And so we had done a lot of research and we had done a lot of, you know, the pre-work that I think was important. But there were some other factors that sort of led us down the path of um, meal delivery. And it's not a crazy idea. It's been a, it's been done other places. It's evidence based to really make an impact um, on people's healing when they leave the hospital. A lot of people are undernourished, underfed, and it reduces readmissions. Yes, yeah, there's a lot of evidence. For yeah, so it's, it's a, a good, good idea. idea. And so we picked an at risk population. We had a really um, bought in leader who funded the the project. We had a vendor who was going to supply the meals. We had folks who were already going to people's homes after re- after they had been discharged. Um, and so we thought, well, we'll just tack on this meal thing. And again, a great idea. But <laughs> we are a giant healthcare system, and we are not a meal delivery service. And that was one of the things that we learned right away was, you know, we can have the cooler bags and we can have social workers toting these frozen meals around. Um, but at the end of the day, we are just not set up to do that. We cannot, we are not blue apron. Um, <laughs> and I think sometimes you see that, um, there's an idea that works really well somewhere else and, and they have the capacity to do it. And it's just not our core to provide those types of meals. So I think the idea is still good. And at some point we might find a better way to do it, but we learned on a very small scale that we are not good at it. And the people, they didn't really want the food that we had. And it good was learning. good that we good tested learning. it. Yeah. But <laughs> and at the beginning we had presented this idea to leaders and they were like, this is great. Let's scale it. And we we're like, no, we have to, we have to test it first. Like, I don't want to be responsible for scaling a terrible idea. Right. And so I'm really glad that we tested it because it kind of bombed, but it was a small bomb. Yeah. Which yeah. goes back to your risk mitigation. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That could have been so much worse. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a lot more wasted meals for yeah. sure. Yeah. Maybe uh, two more, two more questions. So you each have opportunity to teach principles of design thinking. And then you also facilitate or, or you do it yourself, your, your practitioners. What's the difference between well, the difference in your experiences between teaching it and doing it? I think for me, when I'm the biggest difference when I'm teaching is I'm constantly looking at new sources of information so that I can keep the content fresh. I can keep the classes fresh so that I don't get bored. And so that also make sure that I'm delivering the latest you know, of research, the latest what we know. And so I find that when I'm teaching, I'm also learning. I'm learning more than when if I'm consulting, it's more about, all right, here's what I already know, and here's how we're going to do this. Now, our consulting is also a lot of teaching as we go. So we kind of describe our approach as, as which is the tip of the spear. Do you want to get something done or do you want to learn? If you're trying to get something done, well, you're still going to learn along the way. You know, we're going to help you solve for X while your people learn how to do stuff they can then do for themselves going forward. If your primary goal is to learn, great. We'll teach you some stuff, but we're going to teach you around a real problem you're trying to solve, so you're going to get some stuff done along the way. But for me, that teaching is also great. It provides greater opportunities for me to learn new stuff, which I just love. And I would say I 
consider myself to be a pretty flexible practitioner of human centered design until it comes to my catalysts. And I want them to do it my way first. And that's it's sort of gotten to the point at first I was like, yeah, sure, you can do this, you can do this. And I think when you are comfortable with design thinking, you can cut some corners or you can flip some things around. But what I realized is that people, students, and just new folks to the methodology, they needed structure. And so I couldn't just be all loosey-goosey with the structure. So I'm a little bit more rigid as a teacher than I am as a consultant on projects. Yeah. Great insights. For those who whose curiosity has now been piqued, where can people go for additional resources to learn about human-centered design? What would you recommend? There are lots of amazing resources for free on the internet. I think obviously the D-School, IDEO, those are kind of historically where all information kind of flows from. You can see what people are doing on Medium. I think Google Ventures has a book called Sprint about how to kind of do this quickly. And their Medium and their blogs have tools that are just free. Like that's one of the amazing things about this community is that people share so many of those resources. I will plug our design thinking sessions book, which you can get on Amazon or a free PDF if you go to our website. So I think we can put that in the show notes. If in your community, you can look for different types of training. I think hands-on is always going to be the best. It's the best way to learn. Um, But you can find tons of free or very low cost resources just by starting to look. Yeah. I think if you start with the D school, then you'll get the principles and you can kind of find what works for you from there. That's great. Yeah. So the D school, I mean, and an idea, those guys, as far as I'm concerned, at the top of the pyramid, I mean, they're the platinum level uh, folks in this space. And I, I'm so thankful that they are so sharing. They are so open and sharing with their knowledge and what they've learned. Uh, I think that has made a world of difference in, in spreading the word about this discipline, especially to people like me who are not formally trained as designers. So I'll go a different direction. If you are in the Charlotte area, a couple of resources. One that we talked about on a previous podcast, this Forward Faster by Design Breakfast series, it's a quick hitter, right? It's an hour once a month, typically the second Friday of every month. And it's awesome. I will vouch for it. <laughs> Well, well, thank you, ma'am. That's a great place, right, to kind of just skim the surface on certain topics. And you can find information on that. It'll be in the show notes at our website, fasterglass.com. Another local resource uh, that I'll plug, but also in part because we're partners with them, that UNC Charlotte has a four-day design thinking certificate program that's offered in the fall. So we we teach that, but it's two days, one week, we skip a week, and then another two days. So instead of four consecutive days, there's a, there's a two-and-two approach. Uh, but it's also hands-on learning. We take some some civic problem worth solving and, you know, teach, learn some stuff, now apply it. Learn some stuff, apply it. So those are two local resources. Excellent. Excellent. Let's go back to our key takeaways. David, I'll start with you this time. What did I say? Can we rewind the tape? What did I say before? <laughs> um, no. So it is this this principle of design with, not for. And I used to say wherever possible. But now I say even where it's not possible, make it possible. Right. Try everything you can to include. So it's also known as participatory design, but include the people that you are ostensibly designing for so that they can uh, both inform 
and it also helps with buy-in later on. But yeah. you get a better product or process or service or whatever it is, but more likely to be adopted and sustained. Yeah, and like Elizabeth said, uh, oh, I might be stealing your thunder, but the it, it preserves the empathy throughout the process because Absolutely. they're involved in every step. Absolutely. Which leads to? Start with empathy, end with empathy. Never let go of empathy. Um, Never let go, Jack. Never Never let go. (laughs) Um, But really, empathy is not just a warm and fuzzy thought. Like, it is a tangible thing, and you can apply it in your work, and it will make your work better no matter what you do. Um, And the the, the thing that I – I think one of the – the things that I learned about teaching is that you can teach empathy. Um, you may not always be like the warmest, fuzziest person, but you can learn how to build empathy and learn about people and learn about what matters to them to provide something that improves their life. So empathy, empathy, empathy. Amen. Amen. Elizabeth, David, it's been a real treat to learn from you today about human-centered design. Thank you both so much for being on the podcast. Thanks, man. Well, thanks to our listeners. Uh, Thanks, as always, for listening. Parting is such sweet sorrow, but the sorrow will be short-lived as we have more episodes coming out soon. This is Ben Tingey. Adieu, adieu to you and you and you. (laughs) 